We are in the middle of our First Timothy series this summer. It's called The Good Fight. And of course, the key verse in First Timothy is fight the good fight for what we believe. Fight the good fight for what we believe. Now, it's very interesting because some of you guys may be new to the Christian faith or you're saying, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was a peacemaker. I thought Jesus said, put away your sword for those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Uh, what is this talking about fighting? Uh, we're not to fight anybody physically. We are not to uh, promote violence against anybody physically. But there is a fight. There is a battle that we have in the Christian faith that we are to fight. We are to fight for the cause of the historic Christian faith as revealed in the Scriptures. We are the church. We just learned last week that Paul says the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So we have this truth to uphold if we're going to be solid in the church. And sometimes fighting the good fight of faith means that whenever something comes along that contradicts the real basic orthodox Christian faith, if, that con if something contradicts that, we have to stand up and we have to say, uh-uh, no, that is not right, that is not true, we do not accept that, we're not making that a part of our church practice or belief because that goes counter to what the Bible is clearly teaching. And Paul gets into some of that today. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can look in 1 Timothy 4 in your own Bible. We have some of the Bible verses up on the screen uh, also that you can look at. Um, before we get into it, I want to pray, and I, I just want to remind you, you guys are probably aware of this, but in the news, there were two terrible shootings in our country. Uh, first, yesterday in El Paso, where 20 people were killed at a Walmart. And then last night, I think it was at a club or some social gathering, but it was in Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, Ohio, home of the Wright brothers. Uh, there were nine people that were shot and killed and many more that were injured by these terrible shootings. So uh, we want to pray for the, the people there and their family and then pray for our message as it goes forth today. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, our hearts and our sympathy... Uh, goes out to the families and the friends of those poor people who were caught in the line of fire and many of them lost their lives both over in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio. Father, would you bring your Holy Spirit's comfort and sympathy and presence to the, to the families who are grieving the loss of their loved ones in this senseless shooting? Lord, you tell us uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, you said, uh, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you that if somebody hates his brother and has hate in, the, in their heart, he's already guilty of that. And I think, Lord, what you meant was you want us to stop way before we get to the point of wanting to kill somebody. You, Lord, you want us to take the hate that we may have in our heart and you want, to, you want to take that away and you want to replace that hate with love and with grace and forgiveness because you said you want us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Treat others the way that we would like to be treated. So Father, help us as a, as a nation, as a people. Would you help your people to be filled with your spirit so that we would be peacemakers and not people who harbor this kind of hate that leads to terrible, senseless violence. God, please bring peace, please bring reconciliation, please bring unity back to this divided nation that we have. Lord, only you can do that. And Lord, we pray for our ability to hear, to understand, and to put into practice what we're going to be talking about today. Would you give me 
the right words with passion and clarity to declare your truth today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, one of the expected developments in the Christian faith, Paul predicted it, John predicted it, Jesus predicted it. One of the developments that's going to happen in the Christian faith in the end times or in the latter times as is written in the scripture is that there is going to be a rise of heresies. There's going to be a rising up of false teachers in the church today. I say that because Jesus predicted it but uh, weeks or months before he went to the cross in Matthew 24. Jesus said, many false prophets will rise and will deceive many. Many false prophets will rise and deceive many. So it should not come as a surprise whenever they uh, raise their ugly head in the church today. Look what Paul says to Timothy. He says, Timothy, I, I want to give you a warning because if you're going to fight the good fight for the faith of what we believe, you're going to have to be aware of this development in the church and you're going to have to oppose this kind of false teaching. It says, now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from what we believe. By the way, that word turning away, it isn't just a casual walking away from the faith. It's not just a casual, well, I stopped going to church regularly and now I kind of see myself drifting and what I believe and what, where my, my faith and theology is now. It's not, we're not talking about a casual turning or a casual drifting away. It says some are going to consciously, decisively, clearly, assertively turn away. And by the way, that word in Greek is where we get the word apostasy. Some people are going to apostate away from the true Christian faith. In fact, in Spanish, it says algunos apostotaran, apostotaran, which is where we get the word apostle, apostate, turning away from the truth. It says they will, and what are they going to do instead? Because nobody turns away from the truth into a vacuum. I just, I'm just going away into nothingness. I don't even believe anything anymore. You know, even that would be a belief system, not believing in anything. That's called nihilism. But it says they're not going to do that. They're going to turn away from the Christian faith. They're going to follow lying, deceiving spirits and teachings that come from demons. I mean, this is a serious warning to the church today and to Timothy. The spirit clearly means that explicitly, Timothy, this is going to happen. This is going to happen in your church, and you better be ready for it. You better be ready to have a response for it, Timothy. Some will turn away from what they believe. That means that some people who were in the church, they are going to abandon the church. They're going to abandon the Christian faith altogether. There's where we get that word apostasy, as I said. Someone who willfully walks away from the Christian faith. We just saw that in the last couple of weeks. You guys may have seen that in Christian media. There was a, a young man, he's not so old anymore, but in his 20s, he came out with this book in the 90s, and oh boy, he turned Christendom around for the youth, in, uh, young Christians in America back two decades ago. His name was Joshua Harris, and he had this book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Because the only time he said you're supposed to kiss a girl is when you intend to marry her. And the whole dating, he, I'm not going to get into what he was teaching with, I kissed dating goodbye. But it, it kind of revolutionized youth groups and true love waits and having a promise ring that you're going to keep yourself pure until you're married with your husband and all this stuff. So he, he brought that uh, strongly into the church. Well, about a week or two ago, he sent out a, 
a message on Instagram saying that he was divorcing his wife, and I think they have four kids, and he said, and I, if, if I haven't made it clear before, I just want you to know that I am now leaving what you might call the historic Christian faith. And everybody was just like blown away. Like, I, can, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Well, Paul says the Holy Spirit clearly says there are going to be people in every generation in the church in the world today, they're going to do the same thing that Joshua Harris just announced that he did. And by the way, it doesn't, it doesn't make me angry that to hear that. It really grieves my heart to hear that. And I pray that Joshua Harris will have a revelation from the living God to say, Joshua, I don't know what led you to do this, but please come back. Those who are wandering away from the faith. And by the way, James says in chapter 5, if you see somebody wandering away from the faith and you go and talk to them and you help persuade them to come back, you're going to cover a multitude of sins. It's a wonderful thing to be able to do, to go after a lost sheep who's going astray. Some will turn away from what they will believe, from what they believe. They're going to abandon the faith, right? They're willfully turning away. And what is the source? What is motivating these people to turn away from the Christian faith? Paul says it clearly. They're going to, instead of believing the Spirit of God, instead of believing the Word of God, they're going to turn away from that and they're going to start following lying spirits, spirits that are deceptively mixing the truth with the lie and getting people to believe something that is partially true and partially a lie, and that's what most good heresies are. They're a blend of the truth and the lie. Right? And they're going to start believing these lies and teachings. And what is the source of that teaching? It's not just their own idea. It's not just their own creative minds coming up with this. They're being led and deceived to follow teachings that originate from demons, from Satan, from our adversary, the devil, who's also called, he's the devil, el diablo, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the father of the lies. He says, when we live in this world today, we live in a battlefield spiritually. There are angels, there are demons, there's God, there's the devil. We've been saved into the kingdom of God, but we live in, in a world that says the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. And the evil one is going to try to turn people away from their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's not so much human deceivers as is human deceivers who are deceptively led astray by these teachings that originate in demons. So what's the reality? God is looking for men and women to trust in Him, to know Him, and to follow Him. And hopefully you're one of those people. Hopefully you're on God's team. But unfortunately, there's somebody on the other side, and he's evil. And he used to be good, but he turned away from God, and he tried to become God, and God kicked him out of heaven, and he comes down to earth, and he's now trying to pull everybody down with him to get him to turn away from the living God, turn him away from faith and trust in Jesus. His name is Satan, and he's our enemy, and he's also on the lookout. He's also a pretty good recruiter. He's looking for men and women to serve him as well. And so you can become an instrument of supreme good and you can love and serve the living God or you can become an instrument of supreme evil and you can follow the teachings and the deception of Satan. Even people in the church, Paul says, are going to buy into these false teachers' lies, and they're going to follow the distortions of biblical truth, right? What kind of people are they? When you go down to verse 2, it says, these teachers are hypocrites. They're liars. They say one thing. They do something else. They may claim to have a godly lifestyle, but they don't live that. 
Uh, one of the best ways to tell if somebody's really a Christian or not is not just what they're acting like out here in public. Um, I think there's this distortion that some of you may even look at somebody that's speaking from the platform up here and say, well, I, this person seems pretty composed. He seems to love God. He seems to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know 5% of me because of me standing up here. That, you know, the rest of me is really going to be the proof of what I say I believe. Do I really believe it? Do I really practice it? Not perfectly, but at least consistently. Right? And that's where you find out the proofs in the pudding. Jesus said, by their fruits, you will recognize them. And the fruits of these false teachers, they're hypocrites, they're liars. They pretend to be religious, but their consciences are dead. Consciences are dead. Now, some of your translations say their consciences have been seared as with an iron. To where the nerve endings in the skin are deadened. They're no longer feeling. In other words, they don't feel sensitivity when the conviction of sin, hey, you're doing wrong. Hey, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Hey, you're acting selfishly. Hey, you're teaching what is false. And all those messages coming at them from the Holy Spirit, when their consciences are dead, they're sealed, they're seared with an iron, they're not even able to be sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit anymore. It's, it's sad. It says their characteristics of these teachers, what are they like? Well, they practice smooth hypocrisy. They, their conscience doesn't even get convicted when, or feel guilty and ashamed when they sin, right? Uh, they start wanting to redefine, oh, that's not really sin. That's not really against God. That's just an alternative lifestyle. That's just an alternative way of practicing things. You know, you guys are all hung up on this book. That, and why are you believing everything word for word? Don't you know it was written by men? We're going to get into that on what the false teaching is in the world today. You know, this week on Monday, I, I walked into the, the church office, and of course, Monday is Barnabas Day. That's the day when our church serves the homeless and people with meager resources, and they provide them a breakfast, and they give them a shower if they want to shower and get cleaned up, and they, and they give them a sack lunch. And by the way, Chris White told me that Thursday was the biggest day they've ever had, ever had. 38 people or something like that were served in one morning which is pretty awesome, and, and um, good luck to whoever had to clean the shower. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that was a joke. Wow, and lighten up, people. So, so uh, 38 people on Thursday. Well, on Monday morning, I walk in, and, it was, and uh, I came back out of the office to get, as people know me, I get lots of coffee refills in the morning. And I get up because, you know, being sedentary is like the new cancer, so I always want to get up and move around. So I move around to go to the kitchen to get my coffee refill. And, and on the way, over the wall, I hear Malcolm. You know, you guys know who Malcolm is? He's one of the regulars, and he actually serves in the Barnabas ministry now, and he's awesome. He talks to people. He knows all their names. He knows these people. And he's a follower of Christ, and he's always spouting off his latest poem on, on what it means to follow God. I love Malcolm. So Malcolm's talking to this guy, and he's a young man, and Malcolm's... And the subject was the, the groups of Judaism that were in Israel in the first century. <laughs> and so I'm immediately tuning in, like, wow, this is a different conversation than what I'm usually hearing over the wall. 
So Malcolm is talking about the different groups of Judah. And, oh, and you got the Sadducees, and they were in charge of the temple. And you got the Pharisees, and they were the real strict ones. And they were against Jesus because they didn't like his teachings and breaking the Sabbath. And then they had this other group, the Essenes and the Essenes. You know, we think maybe the, uh, John the Baptist came out of the Essenes living in the desert. And, and I'm listening to that going, all right, Malcolm, you know something about, you know, first century Israel. And the other guy stops and says, well, I think Jesus was a Gnostic. I think Jesus was a Gnostic. And I went like immediate, and I'm studying this material now. And I'm studying false teaching and false doctrine. And my, the hackles on my neck went up and my discernment went up and I went, hold up, hold up. And so I came out of anonymity and I stepped behind the wall. Hello, my, how, how are you? And I said, so you say Jesus was a Gnostic, huh? Well, if I understand what Gnosticism is, Gnosticism is this belief, and it was the, the biggest heresy in the first two centuries of Christianity, the biggest challenge to the Christian faith, because Gnosticism said, look, spirit is good, and that's so far so good, right? Jesus said God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit is good, but matter, anything physical, anything in the flesh, anything in a human body with skin on, Matter is evil, spirit is good, right? So I said, if that's the teaching of Gnosticism, that means that God would be spirit, and if, if matter is evil, then God would want nothing to do with matter or, or anything physical or fleshly. So I said, and yet the story of the Christian faith is our God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he decided to become a human being. And so born into the human race through the Virgin Mary, Jesus became a human being and he was physical. And the, my understanding of scripture is Jesus never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He never did anything to offend God. He loved God with all his heart. He loved his neighbor as himself all the time. And yet Jesus lived in a physical body for 33 years. So if Jesus was a Gnostic, why would he ever have become a human being at all? I said, that makes no sense to me. And, I, and so I said, therefore, Jesus was not a Gnostic. And he looked at me and he walked out. <laughs> so, so I was like, well, you can't win them all the time. Maybe I gave him something to think about, right? Uh, if it's not, because here's the point, Jesus lived in a human body for 33 years. It's not being in a human body that makes us sinful, right? Being a human being physically does not make us sinful. It's what we do in our body. It's what we say. It's our motives. It's our actions that we do that in our spirit animating our human body. That's what makes it sinful or righteous behavior, right? It's not just being in a physical body. So there's, there's the point. And so here's my point. This guy coming up saying Jesus, is, Jesus was a Gnostic. is like, where did he get that? You know, where did that teaching came in? It, I believe it came in. It says the Spirit clearly tells us that in the last times, people are going to abandon the faith and they're going to start believing lying spirits and doctrines that come from demons. And there's an example of it right there. Uh, Gnosticism, the biggest challenge of the Christian faith. In our faith, how do we tell the difference between what is true and what is false? How do we even know the difference? 
In 1 Corinthians 12, and we talk about spiritual gifts, this would be an awesome spiritual gift to have. I believe that some of you sitting in this room today have this spiritual gift. This is called the spiritual gift of discernment. Spiritual gift of discernment. And this is what it says. It says, He, the Holy Spirit, this is 1 Corinthians 12, He, the Holy Spirit, gives someone the ability to know whether it is really the Spirit of God or whether it is another spirit that is speaking. So you know what happens. So somebody starts talking, and he starts saying Jesus is a Gnostic, and somebody who has a spiritual gift of discernment, immediately something in them, just the, the, the fireworks start going off, the alarm bells start going off, and they just say that is not scriptural. That is not true. That is not according to the Word of God. Jesus was not a Gnostic. Just as an example, we need discernment in the in the church today. But the only way that people get and develop that spiritual gift of discernment is you have to know what the Word of God actually teaches. So being in regular Bible reading, going to church regularly, and hearing messages that expound the Scriptures, Paul tells Timothy later on, we're going to talk about this next week, he says, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Why? So that people can know the truth. So that people can be able to discern between what is true and what is false. Now, what is an example? The Apostle John, by the way, you know, I told you, John was talking about uh, false teaching and watch out for it. Paul was talking about false teaching right here, watch out for it. Jesus said, hey, in the last times, many false prophets and teachers are going out into the world to deceive many, if that, and even to deceive the elect, if that were possible. Apostle John says this in his letter. He says, dear friends... He says, don't believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. Oh, I just know God is saying that this is what we need to believe. This is what we need to do. He says, you must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. Why? For there are many false prophets in the world. Right? Didn't Jesus say that in the Sermon on the Mount too? He says, he says watch out for false prophets. They come to you like sheep, but they're really not sheep. They're really wolves in sheep's clothing, right? There are many false prophets in the world. That, this is the way. Now, finally, hey, thanks for a hot tip on how we're going to be able to, to practice discernment, right? What's one of the ways we can discern whether somebody has the Spirit of God or some other spirit? This is the way to find out if they have the Spirit of God. If a prophet acknowledges that Jesus became a human being, literally that he came in the flesh, talking about the incarnation, which is why the hackles went up on me when I heard this guy say Jesus was a Gnostic because I said, John says the Spirit of God, the evidence that somebody has the Spirit of God is when they say Jesus became a human being and literally became flesh. So if somebody is saying God would never become a human being, I say that is not coming from the Spirit of God because Jesus did. Right? If it came in the flesh, the Greek word sarks, then that person has the Spirit of God if they acknowledge that Jesus became a human being. So John says there's one way to tell. This is in the later first century. This was one of the tests to see if somebody really has the Spirit of God or not. Now, Paul does say that the false teachers have two parts of their doctrine. So this is one way you can tell what's false teaching, what's coming from doctrines of demons, not from the Spirit of God. Paul says these, two, two things these false teachers are teaching. Number one, they say it's wrong to be married. It is wrong to be married, number one. Number two, they say it is wrong to eat certain foods. 
It's wrong to be married, and it's wrong to eat, eat certain foods. Now, one of the ways I believe that I think Paul was referring to a strain of Gnosticism, of this heresy that was around even near the end of the first century. Why would Paul say that? It's wrong to be married and it's wrong to eat certain foods coming from false teachers is because this idea of spirit and matter. If spirit is good and physical matter is bad, then being married, any kind of enjoyment that you have in the physical body, that's got to be wrong. It's got to be bad because the physical is bad. Any kind of enjoyment that you would have from eating good food has to be bad because you're in the physical body. So Paul's saying if that's what they're teaching, that's not coming from the Spirit of God. Why does Paul say that? Because he says in verse 3, he says, but God created those foods to be eaten with thanksgiving, Right? Why do we celebrate Thanksgiving? Why do we gorge ourselves? The, the, the real sin we commit at Thanksgiving time isn't abstaining from certain foods. It's eating too much of, of good food, right? So, you know, whether you're on the anorexic, bulimic side of eating or whether you're on the gorging, gluttonous side of eating, both are wrong. But the middle ground is where God's word is that God created those foods to be eaten with Thanksgiving by people who know and believe the truth. Believe the truth, in other words, that conforms with God's word. What does it say in God's word? In the book of Genesis, God created everything. He creates everything in all these different days. On the sixth day, he creates mankind. He says, God created them in his image. Or, sorry, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God makes us male and female. God says, go and be fruitful and multiply God saw everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And then you go down to Proverbs, written by Solomon, perhaps. He wrote this one. He should know. How many wives did that guy have? He should know about this. He said, the man who finds a wife finds a treasure and receives favor from the Lord. So according to God's word, marriage is a good thing, not a bad thing, right? Challenging at times, but a good thing, not a bad thing. So friends, it is good to be married. It's good to be able to eat good food and, and enjoy it, right? My friend Danny, he's, he's always like, he, he, you've heard this one, you know, I'm, on the, I'm on the seafood diet, right? I see good food and I eat lots of it. You know, that's his, that's his idea of dieting. And thank God, Danny, God gave you a metabolism that you can do that. Not everybody that can do, can do that. But to be able to enjoy good food and the things that God gives us, that's godly behavior. It's okay to enjoy the life God has given us in this human body. And by the way, in this physical human body, what does it say the temple? Wait a minute, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul was talking about the temple in Jerusalem where the sacrifices were. Supposedly, that's where God inhabited in the Holy of Holies. And now in the New Covenant, it says God isn't in that temple in Jerusalem anymore. It got destroyed in 70 AD anyway. Where is God's temple now residing? Thank you, Holly. In me, in you and me. She says like, yeah. So, I, I, see, that's good self-esteem. God's Spirit is inhabiting me because it says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is spirit and it is good, if matter were really evil, why would the Holy Spirit ever come and want to live in you? So, Gnosticism is obviously not of God, not God's teaching. So, it's not wrong to be married. It's good to be married. It's not wrong to eat certain foods. It's good to be thankful 
and to give thanks. Every time Jesus ate food, he looked up and he gave thanks for it. So eating food is good in the way that God designed it to be. So here we are. We go back to the, like the two things, the, the marriage and the food. Now, those are things that were going on in the first century, trying to prohibit people being married, trying to say it's better to be celibate and single. Sorry, but, but part of the, the strain of the church over the centuries has had a lot of trouble with this idea of church leaders being celibate and single when God may not have designed them to be that way. So you see problems that come up in the church when false teaching comes in and how the teaching of Christ gets distorted. What I want to talk about the rest of the message today is I want to talk about a false teaching that is out in the world today that has been gaining in strength, gaining in influence over even the Christian community in the last 20 or 30 years. And this is the influence of progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity. What is, what's an example of false teaching in our day and in our present age? My, my opinion is one of the biggest examples going on right now in the church today is progressive Christianity. What's the definition of progressive Christianity? It's a postmodern movement within the Christian faith that seeks to change and transform the Christian faith and make it more congruous with societal values and, and uh, practices that are going on in today's culture today. So in other words, we, you want to make it more palatable to the world out there, more palatable to those outside the Christian faith. So we're going to have some rules within the Christian faith. We're going to change it to make it more that, like, hey, we're with you guys. You know, we're not, we're not these uptight, bigoted, hate-mongering, hate you know, stuck-in-the-Bible Christians of, of the first century. We're, we're living in the 21st century, and we're progressive, and we're modern, and now our faith now practices in a way that... Is, is more compatible with what's going on in society today, right? It sounds, I mean, that sounds like it might be okay until you see what they believe and what they practice. Let me, let me give you an example. I read this in Decision Magazine uh, uh, about two months ago, and I said, I'm saving this article for this talk that I'm giving on 1 Timothy 4 about watch out for lying spirits and doctrines of demons that are going out in the church today. There is a candidate. He was in the first debate, I believe, uh, this week, one of the Democratic candidates for president. He is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He is a, he's in his 30s. Uh, his name is Pete Buttigieg, right? And as a Democratic candidate, uh, he is running for president, obviously. And he called out a couple months ago, he called out the vice president of our country, who happens to be an evangelical Christian. His name is Mike Pence. So Pete Buttigieg calls out Mike Pence uh, publicly, and this is what he said. He, he began criticizing Vice President Pence, who is a self-described evangelical Christian. Buttigieg openly challenged Pence, saying this. He says, if you've got a problem with who I am, and who is Pete Buttigieg? Now, I think the reference is Pete Buttigieg is, he says he's a Christian, he is gay, and he's married to another man. And he says that he's never been closer to God than he is right now. All right? So there's where Pete's uh, expression of Christianity is coming from. And he says to Mike Pence, he says, if you've got a problem with who I am, your problem is not with me. Your quarrel, sir, is with my creator. And Pence, now Pence is, is an advocate of religious liberty and 
um, I'm thinking he's going to give a response in a certain way, but instead of zigging, he zagged, right? And this is what Mike Pence said. As an advocate of religious liberty, Mike Pence responded to Pete Buttigieg, and he said, I think Pete's quarrel is with the First Amendment. All of us in this country, we have a right to our own religious beliefs. I happen to be a Bible-believing Christian. And he left it at that. He didn't condemn him. He didn't call him out for any, any particular behavior or anything he said. He just said, look, you've got a right to believe what, I, what you believe in this country. Whatever religion you practice, I have the right to believe what I believe. I identify as a Bible-believing Christian. We can define progressive Christianity. It's a post-liberal movement within the Christian faith. It wants to reform the faith using the insights of postmodernism and a reclaiming, a repackaging of the Christian faith. Some of the things that it does, it doubts, this is progressive Christianity, it doubts the historicity and the factuality of the Bible. It doubts that the Bible's really written, you know, not just written by men, but inspired by God and the Holy Spirit. And in the original documents, they were without error. So they would say, no, that, that's not true. It's full of errors. It's full of human writing and errors that come with human beings. So that's one thing. It, it, re, it repackages by doubting the historicity and factuality of the Bible. It questions tradition. It says, yeah, we practiced this for centuries, but that's really not right or not you know, uh, uh, acceptable in today's culture. Um, quote, progressive Christianity. And I read a huge article on this. Uh, there's a guy that wrote it from Australia. He wrote it about 10 years ago. But he said, I want to explain progressive Christianity to the rest of the world. And in this, this is what he said about it. He says, we, we want to be known as Christians who accept human diversity. Accept human diversity. In particularly talking about sexuality. And he said, we want to be known as Christians who emphasize, we put the stress, we put the, all, the, all the, the attention of our Christian faith on the practicing of social justice, on the practicing of social justice. Is it wrong to practice social justice? Absolutely not. But that's not all there is to the Christian faith is what I'm saying. So what I want to share with you, and this is in your bulletin, there's some fill in the blanks, is there's five signs, there's at least five signs that a church, maybe even our church, your church, might be heading toward progressive Christianity and false teaching. These are some signs that I'm going to say, if you see this start to happen in our church, these are some things to watch out for. These are some things to practice Christian discernment, discerning between what is true and what is false, between what is, and when I say what is true, I say, what do you mean what is true? You know, like Pontius Pilate, what is truth, right? Truth is power to, to the Roman government. Um, but truth in the Christian sense is that which corresponds to reality. Truth corresponds to reality, and reality corresponds to the written revelation written by Almighty God who is now revealing Himself, His will, His way, and the way we are to live in His Word that we claim is Holy Scripture because it is inspired by, the, by God, Right? And so, whatever this book, whatever this, these revelations of the Scripture teaches, that is what we consider truth. Jesus said it this way when he's praying in the, in the upper room with his disciples. He said, he said, Father, sanctify them. In other words, make them holy. Make them set apart from the rest of the world. Sanctify them, your followers, 
by the truth. And then he says this, your word is truth. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said. My words will never pass away. So here's five signs that a church is, is, is drifting away from the truth and leaning towards something that is false. What, what I would call some of these teachings of progressive Christianity. Let me share these five signs with you. Number one, there's a lowered view of the Bible. A lowered view of the Bible. They say things like, the Bible's just a human book. I disagree. Like, like somebody will say, I disagree with the Apostle Paul on this issue. As if their opinion is just as weighty and authoritative, authoritative as the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And they claim to have the same authority to be able to say what's real and what isn't. I disagree with the Apostle Paul on this issue. And another way they'll, they'll say is a, a typical quote is, the Bible was written by men and men make mistakes. Or maybe what was okay in the first century, now that we're so much more modern and civilized, we've grown so much, Whatever they revealed in the first century, we need to repackage for the 21st century, right? So number one, there's a lowered view of the Bible. Number two, feelings are promoted over facts. Feelings are promoted over facts. So we want to go to the next slide. Feelings are promoted over facts. The Bible just doesn't resonate with me, somebody might say. I just can't believe God would feel that way, right? I can't believe God would feel that way. And then, of course, the classic one, which was, of course, penned by Debbie Boone in a famous song in the late 70s, was, it can't be wrong if it feels so right, right? It can't be wrong if it feels so right. Now, everything about that song was pretty good until she got to that one. It can't be wrong if it feels so right, because you, you light up my life, right? So, I can't believe God would feel that way. They're putting feelings and their their subjective experience feelings as, as more authoritative, as having more weight than actually what is revealed in the written revelation of Scripture. I think a better posture would, instead of being, I just don't feel it or I don't feel that way, a better posture would be, wait a minute, what does the Bible say? What, are, what, do, what is the doctrine or the teaching of the church on this historically? right? Find out what that says first before you go to your feelings. So feelings are promoted over faith. Number three, essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. Essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation, right? So those uh, progressives will say something like, the church's historic position on sexuality, it's archaic. It's archaic. It needs to be redefined, repositioned. Whatever was historic obviously was wrong. Whatever modern is better. Uh, the values that we have is better than what they had back in the day. So uh, here's another idea. Central Christian doctrine open to reinterpretation. The idea of hell. Wow. Let's, let's stop talking about hell. Hell is offensive. Hell is offensive to talk about to Christians and non-Christians. Let's just get rid of this idea of talking about hell. In fact, let's not talk about hell as a place where people go eternally to be separated from God because they refused to trust, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that He's the Christ, that He's the Savior. They refused to put their trust in Him and submit their will to God. Instead of saying that's a place where people go to after death, let's just call hell what people have to go through here on earth in order to get to paradise, 
So they want to redefine the idea of what hell is since the idea of hell is so offensive. We don't want to talk about that anymore. Uh, how about this one? Um, this one, saving yourself sexually for marriage is unnecessary and it's unrealistic. Now, Lisa and I went to a wedding about a month ago. It happened to be for our nephew, Tim, my brother's oldest son, Tim. And Tim was 31, and he married this uh, young lady who was 27. Her name's Mary, and they got married at age 31 and 27. And by the way, in the year 2019, that's approximately the average age that people are getting married, who, who choose to get married, that people are getting married for the first time, age 31 and age 27. My question is, so what did they do with their sexuality from the time they were, say, oh, 14 or 15 until waiting to get married until they're 30? Do you really think everybody's just being celibate and saving themselves and true love waits, you know, and, and, and do you really think that's happening even among Christians in the church today? The answer is no. The surveys are out there. The reports are out there. They're not waiting until marriage. They're, and, and, they're, and, and instead of saying, I've done wrong, I need to repent, I need to get back to what God designs sex to be, is they're saying, let's just throw out this whole idea of sex outside of marriage as being something that's just so bad and so wrong. You know, so they want to they redefine sexuality and sexual behavior among Christians in the church. So they're they're reopening essential Christian doctrines. Number four, historic terms are being redefined. Historic terms are being redefined. Like, here's a term where you say, God is love. God is love. Does the Bible teach that God is love? That is not a trick question. <laughs> yes, God is love, right? God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, right? But their definition of love is God is love, meaning he wouldn't ever punish sinners. I mean, we're all sinners. We're human beings. We make mistakes. None of us are perfect. We all mess up, you know. So instead of saying sin is rebellion against God, sin has to be punished. The wages of sin is death. That's why God sent Jesus to die on our behalf. Just say, forget about this whole need of a, embracing a Savior who died for you. Let's just believe in a God who won't even punish sin because he's a God of love. He's a God of compassion. He understands your human condition. And, say, and they, they continue, they'll say something like, well, God, God isn't the all-powerful, holy, sovereign creator who has your eternity in mind. Didn't Jesus say these words, by the way? I don't even, sometimes I don't even know what they do with these words, if they ignore them. But Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't touch your soul, right? You remember Jesus said this? I think it's in Matthew 10. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Be afraid of the one who can not only kill your body, but who can send your soul into hell. Now, those were the words of Jesus. And he said, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. So you're, you're either going to take the, the clear teaching of Jesus in Scripture, or you're going to abandon that and start reinterpreting it according to your own ideas and philosophies. And you're going to have to redefine some of these terms about who God is. So God, you know, he's not the all-powerful, sovereign judge, creator. When we die, we're all going to be judged based upon our moral choices. Oh, that's not going to happen. God, in fact, God is really just kind of a force. He's a metaphor for love and compassion and beauty and basically like a big Santa Claus up there. And whenever you need help, just call on him and he'll be there for you. He's a moral therapeutic deity. That's, that's what God is anymore. That, that is 
the teaching of cults or some cults. It's a teaching of secular philosophy, but it's also the teaching of progressive Christianity. And number five, here's another sign to watch out for. The heart of the gospel message shifts. In other words, what is the key message of the gospel? It shifts from sin and redemption. You know, God creates man in his image. Man makes choices to, to not follow God. Man goes his own way. Man gets estranged from God. God says, I got to do something about this to save man. So he sends Jesus to become the substitute sacrifice for sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid for sin on the cross. The way we get reconciled to God is we trust in Jesus, what he did for us, and now through faith in Christ, we come into right relationship with God. There's the heart of the gospel message, right? They're changing it from sin and redemption to now the heart of the gospel message is all about social justice, you know? And they, I'm, hey, bring up St. Francis of Assisi, right? Didn't he say this? Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words, right? And somebody says, oh, isn't that great? That means we don't have to preach at all. We don't have to say anything at all. We don't have to share our faith in Christ at all. We just need to go out and do good works. And when the people see our do good works, somehow just by osmosis, they're going to know we do this because we love and follow Jesus. We're trying to love our neighbors ourselves. And without saying anything, they will just drop to their knees and say, I want to believe in the Savior you believe in. Don't we have to say something if that were the case, didn't Jesus, if, if anyone lived a righteous life and promoted social justice and, and attacked evil and did only good and loved his neighbor as himself, Jesus is the embodiment of that. And yet Jesus had to speak. Jesus had to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And there were still people in Jesus' day that said, forget about following this guy, put him on a cross and execute him. So we have to say something. We cannot give up the heart of the gospel message. You know, that's, that's a sure sign of a false gospel, right? The true Christian faith makes moral demands on us. The sign of a false gospel is this. If, you, if your God, here's a sign that you believe in a false gospel. If your God never makes any demands on you, never convicts you of anything that you've ever done wrong, chances are your God is probably you. Paul warned the Galatians, you know, even 20 years into, 20 years into the founding of Christianity, there's, al there's already a, a heresy that is out there that is so bad that Paul says, I wish these people would be eternally condemned if they don't stop teaching this, right? Paul says in Galatians 1, I'm astonished. He's, I mean, Paul, this, Paul is probably as worked up in this letter as he's ever been in any of the letters he's, write, he's write, written. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel, a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. What is false teaching all about? Throw God's people into confusion. Get them to doubt what God said. Get them to follow the pattern of Satan. You remember when Satan was in the garden in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and he says, what is this first thing that he said to Eve? Hey, what's up, Eve? No, that's not what he said. He said, did God really say? Question, bringing in doubt. 
you know, throwing Eve into confusion, trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul says, if I come to you and I start preaching this gospel that these guys say they're preaching to you, then I deserve the same punishment they do. Even if we, even if an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. That's pretty strong words. Paul told Timothy, the church, the gathering of God's people, the ecclesia, I just, by the way, I never thought of this before. Iglesia is so close to ecclesia, and I never thought of it. Iglesia is a Spanish word for church. And it's so close to the Greek word ecclesia, which means assembly, which means gathering. It doesn't mean a building. That's the German word kirk, where we got the word church. It's not, the church is people. It's not a building. Paul says this assembly, this gathering of God's people together of Jesus' followers, this is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. But I'm going to tell you this, and this is the warning to the church today. This gathering will not be the foundation of truth anymore if we drift away from the clear teachings of the apostles of the New Testament. If we're not going to remain anchored to God's holy revealed word to us anymore, and we start anchoring ourselves instead to the opinions of men and women, to the loudest cultural voices in our generation who want to tell us how to live and what to value, if we're not anchored to biblical truth, Paul says that we will be like spiritual infants. We're going to be like little babes. And he says in Ephesians 4, we're going to be tossed back and forth by the ways, we're going to be blown here and there by every wind and teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be a spiritual infant. I want to be anchored to the truth of the gospel that is found in the Word of God. I want to, I want to sing that song and mean it when I say, On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. John, I'm going to invite you and the worship team to come up as we're closing here today. Paul tells Timothy, so he's talking about false teaching. It's coming from lying spirits, doctrine of demons. They're going to try to forbid people to marry. They're going to try to get you not to eat certain foods. They're going to try to distort the gospel into their version of the gospel. Timothy, you've got to resist that. You've got to fight the good fight for what we believe and oppose that false teaching in the church. And Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you do this in verse, five, in verse 6. He says, if you point out these things to the brothers, you'll be a good minister, a worthy servant. There's that Greek word diakonos again. Remember where we get the word deacon? You want to be a good deacon, Timothy? You want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus? You've got to point out these things to the brothers. You've got to warn them of the false teaching that is in, even inside the church today, so that you will be brought up in the truths of the faith and the good teaching you have followed. You don't want to fall in the trap of false teaching. You don't want those church people, you don't want those Christians to fall into that trap, into the lies and into the deceptions. You don't want to float around this world blown or back and forth by the latest trends and philosophies. Timothy, don't do it yourself, and don't let God's people in your church do it either. Jesus says, follow me. Trust in me. I'm your Savior. Let me lead your life. Learn my teachings, and then you'll know the truth. Wow, Jesus talked about the truth.
right? Gets back to that. First of all, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But he goes, if you hold on to my teachings, Jesus says, then you will know the truth. And when you do that, what's going to happen? The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. You've got to hang on to the truth of God's word. This is eternal life, Jesus says, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I'm going back to an ancient hymn, an old hymn, but I love it. It says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. And you know what? All other ground, if it doesn't match up, if it doesn't conform to the teaching of Christ, all other ground, it's sinking sand. Jesus has a word for that. He says, you, you, wait a minute, let's talk about two people. Those who heard my teaching and practice it, and those who hear my teaching and don't practice it. One of them builds their house on the rock, the other one builds their house on the sand. The storms are going to come at both houses. Which one is going to stand when the storms hit? The one that's built his or her house on the rock of Jesus Christ and puts his teachings into practice. That's who I want to be. That's who I hope that you want to be also. Will you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Father, we want to be aware of false teaching that is in the church even today and what it looks like because it's going to be different than the first century. Paul warned Timothy there was false teachers, and this was what they were saying then. But, Lord, there are other false teachings that are in the world today, coming into the church today. And, God, please, we need discernment to be able to know what is true and what is false, to know that you were God who became a human being so that you could be our Savior. And you walked among us, and you taught, and you did miracles, and you gave your life on a cross so that we could be forgiven And while our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, if if you're in this room today or you're listening online and, and you're just coming to realize that, wow, Jesus, he's not just a good teacher. He's not just like a a man worthy of us imitating. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. He said, follow him. He who believes in me will have eternal life. If today is the day for you where you're going to cross that line of faith and you want to follow Jesus, would you please just pray this prayer along with me? Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are the Son of God. You're the Savior of the world. And you didn't stay dead after dying on a cross. You came out of that grave alive. And now you're reigning in heaven at the right hand of God. And you're asking me to follow you. Well, today, Lord, I give my life to you. I'm committing myself to follow you. Be my savior. Be my leader. Show me how to live through the clear teaching in your word, the Bible. God, show me how to be the kind of person that is known as a follower, dedicated follower of Christ Jesus. Help me to do that today. And Lord, for the rest of us who are, always, who are already followers of Christ, Lord, give us the discernment. Give us those warning bells in our spirit, in our hearts, in our minds. When we hear something that does not conform to the clear teaching of the gospel, would you help us to recognize it and turn away from that so that we can stay close, devoted followers of Christ according to your word. And we pray these things in the name of our matchless risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.